Roisin Kyburn is an author, journalist, and internet traveler. This this year, her book, The Disconnect, A Personal Journey Through the Internet, was published to widespread acclaim. We asked her onto the podcast to discuss some of the big issues we face collectively with the internet and to learn more about Roisin's personal relationship with the internet and its impact on her physical and mental health. I know, I feel, I feel like I say this every almost every week, but we truly covered a lot in this podcast, in 90 minutes, I think it is. I hope it flows somewhat coherently and you enjoy the unplanned yet vital Kanye West detour. Roisin's enthusiasm made this a real pleasure for Seb and myself. Be sure to check out Roisin's book at all good bookstores. Thanks for listening. Roisin Kybird, welcome to the Earthly Delights podcast. What's the crack? Thanks very much for having me on. Um, the crack is, it's a gray day in Dublin. Summer has declared that it is over. The, the weather is only going to get worse from here on in. The day is shorter. And I woke up feeling weirdly angry today. Oh, um, angry at the weather? Yeah, angry at life. Um, I drank like many coffees and that made it worse. Uh, but I think I've calmed down now. It's worn off. Okay. Happy to be here. <laughs> Has that's a, always a good start <laughs> has appearing on the earthly delights podcast uplifted your day already yes uh, yes it works <laughs> <laughs> amazing i'm glad to hear also i do we are recording on the 31st of august and i'm wearing a thick blue hoodie because it's cold and gray yeah it's really, it really gone isn't it the it came it came and went so fast yeah. I was going to say, did it ever come to Dublin? The way you guys talk about it, I'm always, I'm almost like, because I mean, I'm having to sh- put the shutters down. Like, if I open the shutters, <laughs> it's pure sunlight. It's blinding. I, I get burnt sitting here. I was in Paris for, um, up until like, two <laughs> weeks ago, I was there for about three weeks and it was heat wave. It was full on le canicule. Um, we were taking care of a cat. So we got to, me and Rob got to stay in Paris for free, which was wonderful. Beautiful. Beautiful. And you just mentioned there, Rob, just so people know, Brilliant. that's uh, Rob Coyle, yes. <laughs> former guest. This is the first, like, you you make up the first power couple of the Earthy Delights podcast. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, yeah. yeah, I know. These are new waters. Oh, yeah. It's amazing. Uh, I have so much to say, Roshin, um, so much to ask about. I'm going to try to make this, as me and Sarah are going to try and make this coherent as possible. Um, but first of all, I'd just like to, for people listening who might not know about you, could you tell us a bit about yourselves, a bit, bit, a bit about yourself, and how you came to write this collection of essays? Oh, um, <laughs> hello. I'm Roisin Kybert. Um, I'm frequently mispronounced. Um, <laughs> and my book is called The Disconnect, and it came out this year with Serpent's Tail. Um, the kind of small little, what's it called, subtitle of the book is A, a Personal Journey Through the Internet. So it's a collection of interconnected essays um, about kind of the intersection between the internet and technology and life, um, which I would car- I would call it maybe fifty percent, you know, personal memoir, and then fifty percent cultural criticism, and it kind of branches from things like twenty-four hour late night su- low cost super gyms. And mm. the changing shape of Dublin in my lifetime, um, and then to things like 
energy drinks. Um, people are probably wondering what the hell does any of that have to do with the internet and technology. But the book makes the case that they are all connected. <laughs> um, and things like dating apps, um, vaporwave music, lots of just weird little things. My, my kind of mission in writing the book was to bring out the strangeness in everyday life and highlight this in things all around us that maybe we just take for granted. Mm. Um, so before I wrote the book, I... I am and have been a journalist as well, writing about tech. I used to write a column for Motherboard, which is Vice's tech website. And I've written for a lot of other places too. Like um, most recently, I'm really happy about this. A few weeks ago, I wrote for the New York Times for the first time. Um, and it was a little, y- y- thank you. <laughs> I was on holiday working on that piece. Um, yeah. And uh, it was about Stanislav Lem, the sci-fi author who okay. I'm obsessed with, um, especially his novel Solaris. Um, but it's the centenary of Lem right now, so I got to write about that. Um, yeah, and I, you know, write bits and pieces. I've done book reviews, often about technology. Um, that kind of keeps coming back. And right now, I'm working on a novel. Oh, very nice. Nice. The earthy delight scoop we're receiving here. <laughs> sort of, yeah. <laughs> well, we'll see what actually comes of it. You know. Okay. Yeah. 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 I know it's a long process. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess like. I had a, a few core questions I wanted to ask you. Um, the first question I wanted to ask was, I get the impression, tell me if I'm wrong, that like your, one of your critiques or your, a general critique of yours of social media includes the idea that it's not about how many friends or likes we have, it's about how many others have and that there's just a constant comparison in our heads with other people and what we're looking around. And I guess I wanted to ask, you know, I mean, I guess we've always compared ourselves to those around us, like our neighbors, et cetera. But whether you think or like your qualm with the Internet is that it's now facilitating a new level of comparison that we just can't like our brains can't really fathom. Like we're struggling with this level of comparison that is now facilitated by the Internet. That's that's interesting. No one's asked me specifically about that before. Oh, great. And yeah, it cuts really deep, though, to, yeah, to the main criticism I'm making, because, I mean, what could be more neoliberal than competition? Um, And in the context of, like, the current Internet, um, it's woven right into our identities. You know, like, if you think about when you log on to Twitter, you have a bio, you, you know, a few sentences with which you describe yourself. So that encourages this really, like, essentialist kind of, dumbed down thinking about who you are and that's how we perceive others as well as how we like brand ourselves and then beside that you have numbers um and i know instagram have kind of experimented with blurring those numbers especially on posts i don't think i think they still show the numbers next to your like your follower count on the main profile though but i mean yeah you think about that how how deep this idea of like the personal brand goes you know the personal brand was around before social media but social media made it mainstream yeah. we took it from being the preserve of these sort of kind of tragic uh, online business ebook men i always think of like the sort of heyday um seb or sebastian what should i shall i call you seb seb, seb. seb. Yeah, yeah i mean you were saying i don't know am i outing you now on your podcast but no no <laughs> but, but like have you ever read you know that that sort of weird breed of online man who's like that mm. little bit too old to be working in social media and he writes business yeah. ebooks and he yeah. kind of wants to scam you into signing up for a mailing list. And then he's just going to yeah, yeah. how to like invent an online life for yourself. 
<laughs> but exactly. Like, there was this sort of heyday of that. And um, in my book, I talk about, you know, this this article from, I think it's from the 90s, um, called The Brand Called You or A Brand Called You in Fast Company, which sort of inaugurates that whole idea of the personal brand. And um, we don't talk about that anymore. And we certainly don't buy business ebooks the way that maybe we once did. <laughs> but, but, but it's internalized. Like we're all carrying around this idea of selling ourselves on the yeah. internet. So the very way that we think of ourselves is tied up in capitalism, basically. Uh, I mean, I know that's a big sweeping statement, like, oh, capitalism, Shakespeare's dead sky. But it is, and it it changes how we think of ourselves and how we relate yeah. to each other, I think. Absolutely. Like, mm. the, I came, I recently came across um, this pretty amazing definition of embarrassment. And the, the definition was something like, what is embarrassment but the fear of a false image dissolving. The fear of embarrassment is the fear to be truly seen. And I remember thinking, like, getting prepared for the, this interview and just thinking, well, aren't we all on the cusp of huge embarrassment? Because aren't we all on the cusp of a false image dissolving, whether it's our LinkedIn profile or our Instagram profile, etc., etc.? Is is the, our interaction with the internet basically several false images that we're terrified of dissolving because then we'll be truly seen, you know? I love that. And then we might actually have to truly look at ourselves. Yeah. That's, um, it's funny because right now, I don't know, I feel like I shouldn't talk too much about this book <laughs> that doesn't exist yet, but I'm really obsessed with reading about and also writing about the uh, trope okay. of the doppelganger, um, because I think that is the truest source of horror available to us. It's seeing ourselves yeah. with like without flinching, you know, and and just without without subjectivity, just seeing ourselves and being with ourselves. And I mean, partly because I'm working on this book, and partly just because I wanted to at this point in my life. But I'm back in Great. therapy right now, um, and yeah, it, it's sort of. I mean, it's such an obvious, basic thing, but it was something that my therapist pointed out really early on was, you know, how it's bred into me, definitely, and probably all of us, to look for identity in external things, it, you know, and to be constantly sort of running from mm. oneself. Um, and I really do think the entire internet is built upon identity. People like to sort of wax on about how tiresome identity politics are and, you know, all of this and... Um, but really, like, social media is a tool for manufacturing the self. And I don't know if that's inherently bad, because if you look at the history of literature, that was common to literature. You know, like, in the Renaissance, for, for instance, like, self-fashioning through writing poetry, it was, it was normal. And the internet is a written culture. It's just that it's also a commercial written culture in a way that I don't think we've ever seen before in history. Um, and that's where I think things get very warped. Yeah, I w wanted to ask because, like, when you when you first got into social media, started working for social media companies and such forth, like you back then, there probably wasn't the idea of the influencer, so to speak, or at least the idea of the influencer being a career move and a career path. And now, unfortunately, every now and again, I have to work with some of them, and like they're the most not to generalize but when you talk to them they're like the most vapid people ever but be, but like they create this like this 
image or like you said this brand online where it would make anyone's life feel shameful comparing it to the, what they do and yet you're like oh god and honestly for, for for love nor money i wouldn't want to be an influencer but i just wondered like it's a thing now and i don't know how and now that the genie's out of the bottle i don't know if you can ever get him back in yeah do you remember the term micro celebrity mm. that was used around like what like 2010 or something um and i remember the influencer to me like the rise of the influencer coincides with the end of the internet as a sort of weird space like if i think back to even first maybe 2000 to 2010 maybe i'm getting my dates wrong but like the famous people on the internet that i was interested in then had a sort of veneer of strangeness or like non-conventional glamour yeah. to them yeah. with things like alt lit or like kind of maybe not drag queens but like very gender experimenting people on MySpace with like nouns for second names and mm-hmm. <laughs> you know and and like Taolin came out of that all that stuff but like it was all about being a little bit strange and challenging the mainstream and then it's funny how the influencer kind of follows the same mold. Like you think about Tao Lin, like making stickers. Didn't he make stickers of his name and like stick them on the Gawker office door? I just, I just remember he had this whole kind of Andy Warhol shtick and that has become completely mainstream to the point where influencers are peak mm. normie. Like the, mm. and yeah, I think that coincides with the entire kind of place of social media in life. It's weird how, I, this is all probably really obvious, but like something like Occupy served to mainstream mm. these platforms um, and served to accelerate their kind of corporate takeover of the internet uh, in ways that I don't know if we ever would have expected. You know, because when mm. I was working in social media, we had reps coming in from Twitter telling us that this was this revolutionary tool. You know, and do you remember like Mark Zuckerberg? Mark Zuckerberg claimed retroactively that he made Facebook to give college students a voice during the Iraq war. (laughs) (laughs) It's a nice sell, but yeah, I think we can all we can all see through that pretty clearly. I mean, it's an odd one because one of the main criticisms of social media, Instagram, Facebook, especially um, probably Instagram above all, um, and now I guess TikTok is that like we? It's not real life. It doesn't. Pr- it doesn't show real life. It just is just a, a snapshot of the absolute best bits. It's like a montage of anyone's best bits, and so that's why comparison is completely futile because you're never really going to get the true story. Even if someone has a a really grandiose life and stuff, they don't show you the bad parts. And as it happened yesterday, I was telling Jim uh, a story of a girl I know who's like a mini influencer type thing and anyway she would like you know do the typical influencer stuff of all these like tiktok trends with her boyfriend and whatever else and she split with her boyfriend unfortunately but then she made a tiktok of herself crying about like the split up of the boyfriend and then whatever else and instinctually i was just like that is like that shouldn't be on the internet like that. i don't know like something just felt wrong it humanely to me, I was like, the fact that you'd be crying is normal, but then the fact that you would think in those moments when you're crying to video yourself and then further to upload it, to me feels like there's some sort of illness there, some sort of like dependency. And obviously I'm no therapist, but like it for me, it feels like it points to that. But then I was saying to Jim, on the other hand, 
am I not being massively hypocritical here? And is this not a bit of a paradox in the sense that we chastise these people for only ever showing the best bits of their lives at the, you know, these great restaurants or in these be- at the beaches or whatever else. And yet then when they do split up with their boyfriend and they are crying and they put that online, we then say, oh, that shouldn't be for so like you shouldn't be putting that on. That's probably not healthy for you to be filming yourself crying and then uploading it. That's a really, it's an unanswerable question. Because I'm just mm. thinking now, like, there are people, we all know those people who, were they to break up with someone, they would call you that instant and advertise to you. And, like, they would probably do the in-person or on-the-phone version of that kind of Facebook cliche of, like, hashtag living my life, fine without him, like, all that stuff. Um, and they're kind of, by nature, exhibitionist. But I, I do think two things happen. One is that, like, the internet amplifies the feelings because um, that's how you get traction. That's how you get attention by making your, your emotions newsworthy. Um, And the other thing is that, you know, that person might be living a kind of, they might have in some way internalized the idea that they have to report everything Mm. to the internet. And I think that I get, I became so compelled um, to watch videos of influencers apologizing um <laughs> like you we all know um or or uh, influencers speaking their truth oh, i hate that phrase honestly my girlfriend watches so many programs where they say speak my truth or whatever and it i just i actually there's a period where like she would only t- like my my girlfriend was watching loads of demi lovata interviews because i think like she recently i don't know came out or or something happened yeah, so- I, like without gender non-binary yeah yeah non-binary but she honestly and louisa watched maybe all these different types of like of interviews and i watched the one with joe rogan because i'm a bit of a joe rogan fan and the amount of time she said speaking my truth and i was just like oh can we please stop with the phrase like that should just be banished that fascinates me so much because I really do think that I, I know this again maybe is a little bit too convenient of a comparison but like it's a confession booth we report mm. to it like mm. like we would confess in a prayer you know like we yeah. check in with it and we kind of um what's the word like we just have to sort of clear mm. the air with the internet like it would be almost mm. in this person's mind it would be unhealthy to carry around their truth without speaking <laughs> it um and i just i love how like i think it's tati the she's like you know that makeup influencer who had the big beef with james charles and like I just yes. always remember her kind of starting the video and it has this total bait of a title. like, And then she's like, the time has come, brushes hair out of face, to speak my truth. And, and it's just like cookie cutter, like baiting. None of it needs to be said, let alone uh-uh. a YouTube video. Like it doesn't need its own video. And it is clearly shit stirring. Um, and it is clearly choreographed, but like it creates this idea of a kind of morality of the internet that, you know, we must all mm. confess our truth. We must all mm. speak our truth in order to exist, which is yet again, mm. the personal brand. Like you'll still exist. You'll exist mm-hmm. if you don't speak your truth on the internet, but these yeah. people feel they have to. Like, have you, <laughs> have you discovered your truth if you have then not explained it or advertised it through the internet? It's like when you mentioned before the idea that obviously the internet is providing a lot of assistance for a lot of uh, identity issues for people. But I also think that there are some aspects of our own personal identity, like you said, 
that are very intimate and that can't be uttered. They, they, like they, they can't really be explained. They can't be put into words. They can't be described through a thing. And I think in like I sometimes I feel that I feel like there's a paradox where like people are so some of the, some of the internet and its identity work is amazing and it's helping so many people. But I also think it's kind of like trapping people because you'll never be able to find all of you through the internet or express all of you through the internet. That's the thing it can take a lifetime to learn. Um, yeah, I, I find this so fascinating because like here I am, you know, I have a diagnosis of borderline personality disorder. And, and one of the biggest symptoms of that is unstable sense of self. Um, and I mean, kind of at the other side now of having published a book this year, I can say that I learned a hell of a lot of stuff about myself from writing that book that I wouldn't have acknowledged mm. even to myself. And probably if I like play this podcast back, I'll discover things about mm. myself that I didn't know before. I mean, the self is always mm. a work in progress. And mm. yeah, you're right. Like the internet provides these really interesting means of self-expression. Like I think of, I don't know, like indie games or, you know, little kind of tiny operations or like indie films even, or, or YouTube channels for that matter. Um, you know, the people get to sort of develop and thrive. But yeah, I think, it, again, really obvious thing to say, but the internet doesn't have a very nuanced understanding of the mm. self work in progress. You're either what, set, what it says in your bio or you're not. And I don't think it's any coincidence that a lot of the people who speak their truth are also the people who get found out for tweeting like horrible racist mm. shit 10 years ago, you know, because they're yeah. deeply confused and they don't know who they are. Mm. Actually, I just wanted to ask about that because I, do you think that, um, a symptom of that is this cancel culture in the sense that the internet doesn't allow <clears throat> it doesn't allow for change so if you tweeted something 10 years ago no matter how abhorrent it was we are just assuming and taking as a given that you are still that person that tweeted that thing in 2010 and now it's 2021 and we don't allow for change and whereas if you said that in a bar whilst it's not you know the right thing to do or whatever no one's gonna say to you none of your mates gonna be oh remember 10 years ago when you said that joke and in the bar and i mean that was really uncool man i'm, I'm not gonna be your friend anymore because of that joke that you said 10 years ago because we just understand that like yeah that was a joke that we probably found funny when we were all 10 years younger as well and now we all understand that we would have never made that joke now and none of us would laugh at that joke if someone did make it now yeah. but there's nuance to that growth whereas when it's kind of imprint in a 140 characters on twitter with a date put to it it's like oh no but that's steps to accuse them we should hold them accountable forever and they don't kind of give you that room to grow yeah i think like i okay like keep in mind my thoughts on racism as someone white living in ireland who's like never experienced racism are very unfinished but um one thing that strikes me is that those moments which we've had so many of in the last year or two um and mm. probably i wonder has it peaked or um, is it going to continue? I, I don't really know. But um, they're kind of horrible, uncomfortable reminders that we are all creatures mm. of context, you know? And that if you were to look at the culture of 10 years ago, there were a ton of like transphobic jokes. There were a ton of racist jokes out there. And a lot of people made a ton of money off them, you know? And, and music was really misogynistic. And like all of this stuff was just how culture was maybe like 20 years ago, 10 years ago. I, yeah, I mean, um, so then it, that it's the sort of horrible punchline to social media, isn't it? Because it just shows how suggestible we all are. 
So now we're being suggestible towards being anti-racist, but back then we were suggestible towards being edgy. So like it's, it's all just, um, and again, that comes back mm. to like the unfinished self as well, that, you know, I wish there was some way to just break it down into a pie chart. Um, mm. That, you know, how much of us is the influence? How much of us is the context we're in right now and the people we're hanging around with? And how much of us, like, how deep do actual yeah. convictions go? Um, mm. I feel like maybe Hannah Arendt has written about this in a way much more coherent than what I'm talking about, but I, I don't know. I, I, like, I remember I was speaking to my friend about this a while ago. and Like, I'm of the opinion... That, like you said, we are creatures of context, and so there will inevitably be a bit of deviation depending on who we're around. But I also don't think that that means that we shouldn't do work on assessing like who we are, like on a deeper level, and that more like trying to, yeah. if it's a pie chart to keep continue the me metaphor for the slice to get bigger and bigger of you know who you are. That like yeah, maybe I'm like like this with my dad or I'm like this with my friends, but really my friend and my dad wouldn't be so surprised if they saw me in the two different contexts, you know? Like to, to build that up to go, okay, I know who I am, so I'm now in this context where I don't stand by this. And maybe a few months ago or a few years ago, I would have slipped into it. Maybe I would have said a sexist, sexist joke and people would have been fine with it. And But... But if you, like you said, like if you keep on coming back to yourself, you realize like oh, that was just a slip, a slip of, a slip of uh, context that I, that isn't a fair reflection of me, or at least I don't think it's a fair reflection of me. Mm -hmm. It's and we all no, have no, sorry, to, oh, sorry, what were you saying? We all have to cultivate instinct um, and cultivate self knowledge, and I don't think that is very easy to do right now because of all of these factors, because of the internet, essentially. I, I guess, Roshan, I wanted to ask, because um, I don't want this to be doom or gloom. I just, like, I wanted this to be a, a fruitful <laughs> discussion around the internet. Um, how how you reached a point where you thought, right, my, my in interaction with the internet is being too much or its influence on me. It's not, it's not benefiting me. Like, the, the juice isn't worth the squeeze, if you will. And mm. um, I'd love to know, because I'm sure there are loads of people listening to think, like, oh, yeah, like, I mean... I myself have said this, but also loads of people I know have said it where they go, yeah, I really do spend too much time on my phone. I really do spend some, too much time on the internet. And, <laughs> and, and sometimes it's definitely not just an Irish thing, but I see it specifically in Irish context where they kind of make a joke about it. So I'm making a joke about it. So I would prefer for you not to ask a serious question about it to follow because I've acknowledged it. I've made the joke. And now I'd prefer if we moved on, you know, like, yeah, I really need, I, I'm really bad yeah. on my phone. Like I'm, I'm shocking, but th th don't ask me more about it. Cause then I'll have to ask deeper questions and that gets difficult. I know as a nation, we love to complain. We're sort of addicted to the things <laughs> that we complain about and, and addicted to a kind of low yeah. level of self-loathing, which uh, again, all of these platforms and technologies yeah. happily yeah. support. Um, yeah. It, I think um, it, it did. It's very hard sometimes to identify when something has reached a crisis point in your life. But I think I really did reach a crisis point. Um, I was writing the column and what I noticed, it was 2016. And I noticed that like two, like a few things were happening. One was the internet was going very, like internet culture was going very mainstream. And suddenly like my parents, when I was home, they would ask me, what's 4chan? 
what's what's like the alt right? And I realized like I, probably too late, but probably a little earlier than like maybe my parents did that this was this big thing uh-huh. that was transforming culture um, in a horrible way. Uh, or at least it was kind of just looming and like pressing on everyone's mind all the time and was coming to characterize the internet, things like Gamergate as well, um, which I wasn't involved in or anything, but like, <laughs> that sounds like I'm just, not that like I was a victim of it, but that I was like, <laughs> staging attacks or something. <laughs> I wasn't involved in Gamergate. Um, no, but like I had nothing to do with Gamergate at all, but I just watched it all unfolding and it just was making, it was making all these little fringe communities and the more mainstream ones like just Twitter just really unpleasant and really fraught. And the whole thing was just starting to feel like a war, like a culture war, which yeah. it was, it is. Um, but anyway, I really wasn't doing well. I was just like, I was, you know, kind of like this car crash. I just was stuck watching it unfold from a distance and not really involved in it at all. Occasionally writing about developments and trying to make sense of them because honestly I did feel like this was an urgent thing and that we should all be scared of it um but I just became so depressed and I was working like crazy and this is in it kind of there in the chapter the night gym in, in the disconnect it's you know I was I had lost touch with the, the hours of day and night like I was awake at night and asleep in the day I barely saw people I just took on more and more work because I was worried about money which is I guess I've kind of learned to live with because that hasn't got any better. Um, and I would go to the gym at night in the Docklands and just like at 2am I'd be there running on a treadmill and I was always alone and kind of getting paranoid, smoking a lot of weed and um, just really depressed. And then I took an overdose um, and I just, and it, I was so feckless about the whole thing. Um, and after that, obviously didn't die um, and went into treatment and it was funny because I got like, I got CBT and my kind of diagnosis sheet, like what they gave me at the beginning had words like, you know, 4chan and Trump and Twitter and the alt-right on it. Like it was like, this had come to characterize my entire existence. Um, I was also reading Welbeck at the time, which may have had something to do with it. Um, but I, at that at that point, I was like, I have to take a break. There's, there's not going to be another time to like ever that was so obvious that I needed to take a break. Um, you know, you could just work forever. You could just kind of spiral mm. and spiral forever. And the internet would never end or shut off and work would mm. never stop being demanding. But um, yeah, so I started to kind of change my attitude to things then. And a big part of that, aside from like stopping smoking weed and trying to see friends more, was um, kind of withdrawing and changing how I used the internet and trying to create a better connection between body and mind so that I could at least know when things were making me uncomfortable. Um, like a really mundane part of just getting better, obviously like trying to sign out and stay signed out for as long as possible, but I didn't quit anything. I also okay. muted a lot of things. Like I just muted things that made me angry um, and stopped paying attention to them and started like, and compensated by reading something else. You know, it wasn't about becoming ignorant. It was just about trying to change yeah. my little online world to be a better place. For me, anyway, it's yeah. solipsistic, but like, you know, yeah. you have to take as much control as you can, which is not a and lot. Do you also think the something. process of trying <laughs> sure. to make sense of the current climate can almost lead you into really mental fragility? I find that that question so fascinating. Like, I was at a Boris festival about two weeks ago, 
And Rob oh, interviewed yeah. Mark O'Connell, who's you know this wonderful writer uh-huh. and he's the author of Notes on an Apocalypse, or From an Apocalypse, we're on, I forget. But um, I, I wanted to ask him that. And I guess like he, I forget exactly how he responded. He kind of didn't want to, I think, kind of say one thing for certain, but like about, can we understand climate catastrophe while we're in it? Or is it only after the damage is done beyond all repair that we fully comprehend? Like I think of ancient tragedy, you know, like there's this translation of, um, oh, Ajax, before he falls on his sword, he says, it all coheres, what's splendor? And then he just goes, <laughs> I'm dead. <laughs> but like the, what's it called, like Hamarsha, you know? Is it possible to understand before it's over? I'm not sure. I, that's what I wanted to do in the book. I wanted to kind of give myself perspective that I didn't have in life, mm. which I think writing does. Mm. I'm fascinated how the process of writing maybe helped you in this uh, this pocket of questioning the information you come by and and seeing this and it just not making sense to you and then seeing something else and then the reaction to the general public not responding well and then you're just, it doesn't make sense. There's clearly nothing that I can do. I, I wanted to just give it like a personal reflection of um, when when the vaccine rollout was coming was coming um i felt nervous to be honest i felt nervous and then i started to you know quote unquote try do some whatever research and and come across this and come across that and i remember just feeling terrified uh partially because of some of the anti-vaccine content that was there but also just i was so terrified to see how far away we are from an agreed upon truth and how not to, I mean, again, I, can, I, can, I want your take on this. Is this the internet's fault or has, the, has it always been the case or has the internet exacerbated the, the, the grasp we ever had on the idea of truth or an agreed upon basis of truth? It has absolutely destabilized truth. Um, but... I don't like to think personally that it's suddenly bad and that in the past everything was good. Um, It's funny, I was thinking a lot about that recently because I interviewed um, Lord David Putnam at at this festival, the same one that Mark O'Connell and Rob were, um, and he has created this, he's created this paper or he chaired the commission um, on digital democracy and the uh, resurrection of truth. Yeah. That's the name of the paper. And I was thinking all about it when I was interviewing him. It's like, if you look at the history of media, um, it was never perfect. You know, I find it so fascinating because like both my parents worked as news as, as newspaper journalists and my dad did radio as well. And, and like, I was always under the impression that it was quite a stable career and, you know, that the entire kind of, I don't know, just the institution mm. of journalism was stable. And then I graduated college just in time for all of that to completely fall under threat, I feel. And I kind of played a role in it because I would always come in as like the young person or the intern or something and be like, I'll help you go <laughs> online. Um, and, and here we are now, <laughs> post-truth. Um, but like, if you look at the history of media, um, it's built on extremely shaky foundations. There's a really interesting book, um, The Attention Merchants by Tim Wu, that talks about this. And like, you know, you think of like 18th century, the journals, 
which were basically just gossip rags, like extremely highbrow gossip rags, which are the origins of media. And then when they became available more kind of widely and were, you know, actually democratically priced, um, they took on advertising. And in order to appease the advertisers and to sell, they started publishing blatant lies. Um, and it was it was kind of like sleaze, you know, and, and nonsense. Like the, he talks about some old serial about the man in the moon that like some newspaper published an eight-part serial investigation into a man living on the moon like it wasn't real um so like yeah so the history is extremely like we shouldn't romanticize the media that it was always perfect it was uh-huh. always striving for truth and now i think yeah there are all these factors conspiring in the destabilization of truth and it's very very hard to know and it puts massive pressure on the individual which annoys me because we shouldn't have to like you know carry the weight of the world um yeah. same with things like mental health as well you know I, I think it's bigger than the individual and bigger kind of cultural shifts are at fault here um yeah oh shit what was like oh yeah the other thing that this brings to mind is um i went to i went to the um i guess yearly conference for wikipedia one year to write about okay. it it's called wikimania and this guy from the think tank Demos got up, and I just remember this. I'm not like attacking Demos here because I think they do really interesting work. But um, he talked about Wikipedia as a model of online consensus and how this could, you know, be translated into other things. The way that Wikipedia operates, and when I think about it, like, like I just spent the weekend hanging out. Rob and I were hanging out with our friend Kieran, who has a Wikipedia page because he's a musician, and he says half of it is lies. And if you like go behind the scenes on any Wikipedia page, you, you can see the debate. You can see how that consensus, consensus being a very kind of mutable thing, has been arrived at. You know, so like, I don't know. I, I don't have a conclusion here. I'm just making this more complicated. Sorry. <laughs> but like, what is consensus? Maybe, maybe Wikipedia is a consensus. Like, it's a wonderful thing in a lot of ways. It's also yeah. extremely mistake prone and extremely messy and does a good job of kind of concealing all the little like keyboard warriors behind a talk page, you know? Um, so was it ever perfect no is it perfect now far from it i don't know what the answer is (laughs) maybe more public like like the lord putnam thing like his report would say more public funded media would be the answer and fact checking um and i find that hard to disagree with is is there um is there a possibility that we care too much about online in general like our our little worlds that we've created um you were talking about how for example like um when you had your breakdown then like you were kind of getting characterized by like these words like alt-right and and so forth and it strikes me that it's not as if i mean yes there's new phenomena and stuff but it's not as if like we you know the world's politics up until social media was this like lovely field of butterflies and and roses and then social media came along and now it's just like this horrible toxic wasteland i mean there was always problems going on but the problems maybe they were confined to the dining room where you talk about it at dinner and it was within the family but you wouldn't know about your neighbor if he was alt-right or if he was racist or homophobic whatever and by not knowing and by having that level of ignorance it kind of allowed you to get on with them in the day-to-day and you could be oh you're right john whereas when you see john tweeting john some homophobic <laughs> stuff yeah you go fuck john like i don't want to <laughs> fucking speak to john ever again yeah. we're fucking moving do you know what i mean and it's like i don't know if, if we get to a point where 
I'm not saying that we shouldn't care at all. That's not what I'm trying to say here. But and I'm not expressing my point very well. But where maybe there's a point where we just go, that's enough. Like, and we, Jim and I always talk about it because we we cover so many different um, topics on this podcast. And I feel like as a human, you you can only care about so many things. So like, are you trying to save the whales or? Are you really like against racism or are you really against homophobia or are you like really eco-friendly or are you against fast fashion? But you can't be about all of those things to the same extent. Like you kind of have to choose your battles. And I feel like with social media, it's become a thing where if you're not fighting all fronts at a level playing field, you're deemed as like, oh, well, he's homophobic because he doesn't care about homophobia. It's like, no, no, I do care. But like my passion is X. Do you know what I mean? And I don't have yeah. the, the bandwidth for lack of a better term, to like kind of concentrate on all of these different monsters all at once. And I'll leave that to those people who are solely dedicated on that. Do you know what I mean? That's entirely real. I think that's like a kind of existential struggle with our times, honestly. And I think yeah. it renders us all very powerless and feeling very, very tired. Like the kind of, I wanted that tone, mm. to, that sort of tone of exhaustion to mm. run through the book, or at least like to kind of battle it in the book. Because it's that idea, the prospect of a kind of limitless internet that will yeah. never slow down and never end. And, you know, the hardware and the software and the data, they're all exponentially just changing at all times. And we're, and like that, that sort of um, image almost of the human mm. body trying to keep up with machines. And like, I try to kind of ground it in history, like even in the Industrial Revolution and weirdly, um, like the book, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde and how Mr. Hyde is like the perfect kind of, man of his times because he has limitless energy and he doesn't care about anyone I mean, he can just work all night and all day but like um i think also what you're saying raises a really interesting point that so one thing i really loved about writing my column was i got to look a lot at old internet culture um kind of forgotten internet culture and i think you know we have this very short-term memory but like not that long ago within like lifetime you know living memory the internet you know and things like usenet everything was very segmented and you had to sort of earn your place in a community before mm -hmm. you could even really talk about it and be part of it. And then once you were in, you're probably very in. And that meant that, you know, the psychopaths <laughs> stayed in the cycle and the like environmentally friendly minded people were all together chatting about composting in another forum. And if, if like some Nazi dude showed up in the composting forum, they'd all like ban him, you know? Yeah. Um, and I'm not saying that like, people should be completely elitist or exclusive or something about what they're allowed to talk about. That's like, there's a lot of sort of gatekeeping around things. Like I've seen that a lot with feminism, for instance, but um, mm. at the same time, the actual format of the internet would be, I think it would be a more harmonious place were we able to kind of take one issue at a time and find like-minded people. And I think you still see that in things like Reddit, for instance, where, um, you know, I'll go on, like, skincare Reddit, and people are talking about, is this a freckle? Is this a mole or is this a freckle? And I'm like, you couldn't really demand attention for that on on your Twitter feed. I, I don't think you could, you know? Um, it's not that weird. It's, like, millions of people probably. But, but it is niche in some way, mm. um, and it supports more kind of nuanced discussion. I really think yeah. that. Um, it's worth looking up... There was this thing, it has a Wikipedia page and I got to write about it, but it was called the Meow Wars. And it was like this big battle of Usenets where like they were all spamming each other's pages. And it was all about that thing of like the, the intruders. The, 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 
So, um, I just I wanted to pick up on yeah. this it's a, kind of go on, Jim, go on, go on. Switch are like a redefinition of community now that that I that I that I pick up from you in the sense that say before, um, generally our communities were say our church group or who we went to we went to the same supermarket with or the same football team with or. You know, people that we would probably develop some sort of relationship with. We 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 know what they look like. We know their movements. We maybe know um, their family about their family about their background. This kind of thing, um, and and like you said, now we've reached a point where we can kind of enter a community. Say like, oh, I'm part of this group on Facebook. I'm part of this community on Facebook without having the same buy-in, the same source of the same real life feel of connection the the kind of ability to see the pe- the person's eyes to kind of touch them this thing and i wonder what did you think the consequences of this this shift or this redefinition of community what are the consequences of this and i i imagine you think it's it can be again beneficial but also worrying yeah it's um I mean, does it ever feel rewarding in the way that a real community would? You know, I, I think we all know the answer to that. Um, and it's this endlessly demanding thing that you're having to prove your credentials. But also there's like no barrier to entry. So you're just kind of kind of thrown in with a load of kids and a load of like very flippant people. I don't know. I because I don't want to be the gatekeeper here, and I don't really have an answer. Like when you're talking about that, I instantly think of the online left, and of you know the whole sort of old the old vampire castle situation and all that. Like, um, you know, should we? Is that a community? No, not really. Should I laugh at like kids with hammer and sickle pictures in their bios or something? No, like. We all grow and learn, (laughs) but it Mm. makes for a hell of a lot of discord and it probably does a lot of damage as well as educating people. Um, So, like, I would love to see a level Mm. of skepticism around these things that I don't know is entirely present. That said, I I do think it's changing. I think people have stopped seeing, like, for instance, Twitter as a friendly place and see it more as just a monotonous circular hellscape. Um, maybe that's wishful thinking on my part. No, I do definitely think that there's been like some, you, most people kind of acknowledge that they have to, um, regulate their social media use. And I feel like that would only be the case if they recognize that it's a bad thing or not entirely a good thing. Let's put it that way. Mm. You know, no one's telling you to regulate the amount of broccoli you're eating. So, um, I feel like there's definitely been a shift in like, in in the consciousness of people when it, i mean even when i tell people that i work in social media you kind of get the like ooh, like a bit like oh you kind of well that's a bit shady isn't it type deal and it's like yeah i know but it pays the bills for now so um like what? Give me grief. <laughs> i have wondered if that moment of jeff bezos going to space will like kill the dream forever and especially him getting out of the spaceship and thanking everyone who like uses amazon yeah. It's a moment. Like, I know, I think Mark Zuckerberg, like, I have a chapter in the book about Mark Zuckerberg, and it's a funny one because, in, way, in a way, it's changing. Like, he was sort of seen as a god for a while, 
And I really think we're all very skeptical of him now. And maybe it took him being called before like Congress and the European Parliament. But we know, we know what he is now. Like yeah. <laughs> we know that there's there's something sort of sinister and cynical there. And he's not just this boy genius. Um and I wonder, yeah, Bezos, like the space thing was just so spectacularly mm. tone deaf to public image. Mm. Um and nihilistic. I find like the Bezos and the Elon Musk take on space colonization just mm. deeply jarringly nihilistic and all the more so because it's so out in the open. Um, mm. But I wonder, yeah, will things like that, you know, almost more so than things like Cambridge Analytica, will these stunts just kill any optimism anyone might like still have about <laughs> big tech? Yeah, I don't know. It might kill the optimism, but like I think of like Amazon and I just think, as much as you like want to not use them because you might hate Jeff Bezos or whatever, and there's many reasons not to use Amazon. Like, unfortunately, he came up with a really bloody good like service, yeah. and it's bloody hard not to use him. Like, it really is. And like, even like little things, like I'm going on a trip next weekend, and we're renting a car, and I don't have um, I don't have like a uh, a mobile phone holder for a car because I don't have a car. So what's the first thing I did? I just go straight on Amazon. And the next day it's there in the morning. Now I think about it, maybe I should have like gone into like Madrid City Centre. and I, But I don't even know what shop I'd be looking for, for that type of menial gadget. Do you know what I mean? And then I bought my dog like a dog seatbelt, which I didn't even know existed before <laughs> I bought the thing. But like, again, where would I go to buy a dog seatbelt other than Amazon? Like, do you know? And then oh, yeah. for 12 euros yeah. as well. So like, it's one of those ones where it's like, Oh, I don't know. Like, I, I get that, like, we shouldn't use him and stuff. But then on the other hand, it's like, it's so, so convenient. Yeah. Like, there's some kind of, like, brain pathway, I feel, that is, like, yeah. fed by the ability to describe something and then retrieve it from, like, ASOP yeah. or Amazon. Yeah. And when I go into yeah. a shop, I actually get just, like, really frustrated because I can't just type something up and it will appear. Yeah. You know, and I'm like, yeah. I have to search. I have to search. I don't know. But then I think about form, like the last few days, we were, um, my, like my Robin and Kieran and I and just friends, we were all talking about No, Dundee, I reckon it will still um, be knocking about. I guess like, <laughs> will be old news by the time this is out. Yeah. But so like, I didn't realize this whole shift has happened in music where like, they're basically making albums for Spotify. And that's why, you know, there's no sort of single piece of Donda that you want to isolate and listen to again and again and it form like the strange intrusions and intersections between like ux and reality are, are mm. just so weird to me and like i find it, it really sad it makes you that sad that he potentially Donda, made an album not for <laughs> the like making an album and like not like with the intention of it being streamed but he made he made it for swedish I, spotify billionaires Mm. Well, I mean, I Jimmy's I the number one Kanye West I'm, fan. I've been so. working on what my attachment it, with Kanye over the last few months, and uh, I was preparing for Donda to come out, and it not swim well. I think he's still capable of of producing like music that no like nobody else can produce. I think like there's things that pop into his head that, that and he can produce it like nobody else yeah. can. I also think he doesn't have so many people in his life to say, kind of, no, don't, don't, don't do, don't, yeah, don't do that. And then I think he thinks, 
no, they're the naysayers. I, I won't, no, they don't understand, you know? And I think he's, I think he's a lot in his head. I think he has an incredibly active mind and sometimes he produces absolute magic and sometimes he doesn't. And it's, it's, it's tough for him to see the difference. Like, I think he thinks Donda is as good as my beautiful Dark Twisted Fantasy. I'm sure he does. Yeah. yeah. Do you know what? It makes me appreciate his Jesus album, actually. Which at the time I was saying similar things, actually. I was like, this is interesting. You can his torment is still like on his sleeve. You know, like and that's what's so magnetic about Kanye. Um, that like we're watching someone struggle. We're watching someone go through elation, yeah. you know, like like the albums get weirder and weirder and then stuff like what's it, Ghost Town? No. That, that's no what what is it called Ghost Town? Yeah, like stuff like that happens and you're just like, No one else could do this. Um but the new one to me is it's just kinda of bland. It uh- I put it on today when I was walking out my when I was walking my dog because I had it in mind. I was like, "I'll oh, listen to Donda, then I'll get I'll get onto Jim to it and see what see what he thinks about it." And the first song is just like Don. It just Donda. It says Donda, Donda, wasn't it, for a minute? <laughs> and I was like, I thought like I thought my Spotify had like broken or something. And I was like, "What the fuck?" Is-? And I had a look like forty seven seconds in, it's saying Donda. And I was like, Jesus! Like fast forward it. I fast forward it and then isn't there a song called there's a song called jail yes but then there's a jail part two and yeah so when jail part two came on again which is basically the same as jail one again i was like is this spotify's fucking up here like it's broken and then i look at it's a jail part two and then that's when i was like nah this album's not for me but then i love i love like the yay album Mm. um which like i think most kanye west fans and most people in general think was one of his worst but I like absolutely love that album. Like I know they've got a lot of stick, but like I regularly put the album on and just listen to it. So like, yeah, it's, he's a he's a hit and miss guy. But um, but we have like yeah. decades of complete inconsistency in the life of Kanye ahead of us, and we will all follow it attentively. We yeah, will follow exactly. his torment, and that's what that's exactly. something I love. Oh, I love that song. Um, Use this gospel. On the Jesus album, there was like and the, the saxophone at the end. Oh, yeah, I love that song. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Like, I, I was saying tragic, to my friend, like, I think I love Kanye so much because yeah. he is like the different yeah. manifestations of all the things that we've experienced. Like he is the champion. He is the fool. He is the guy, the underdog. He is the guy who should have succeeded but didn't. Uh, he's just all of it. And pretty unashamedly. I mean, I think. Yeah. I, I, I have an inkling that a lot of people um, get angry when, when people show traits that they actually have in themselves, but they don't really want to acknowledge that they have in themselves. And I think that's why a lot of people dislike Kanye. You know, people can say, no, it's because he oh, liked yeah. Trump. Or no, oh, yeah. it's because he said this stupid thing. But I mean, I think we've all said stupid things. I think... I think he's just the guy who's shown that he's showing us sides of ourselves that we are probably too afraid because we're trapped in this this journey or this journey through the internet. This you know working on the pro the project the projection that this is us, this is us. Whereas I think Kanye is like <laughs> he's on a, he's a, he's on the next level through the journey of the internet, and he's almost like no guys, this is me. Like this is. I think his ability 
to to express himself is something that I admire strongly and that I like I remember just sorry because when you mention Kanye I'm always going to go on a little rant there's I remember when everybody was when everybody was bashing Kanye after the the Trump and the the slavery comments or whatever and there were two people that I deeply respect that were asked about Kanye one of them was Jordan Peele and then the other guy I can't remember no I I can't remember who it was but they said something along the lines of what we were criticizing 10 or 15 minutes into the podcast where he says he said something like at the end of the day I can't help but feel that Kanye is expressing himself in the best way he can like he's not lying you know he's being sincere about how he felt in that exact moment and I think that's kind of what we we, we say we want that's what we say we want we want sincerity we want people to be honest but yeah but do oh yeah but do we we want people to love themselves totally that comes up like so can we do it and it's funny me and Seth had a a very good conversation with with a woman called Keanu Fitzgerald who who has bipolar and she said that she really resonated with Kanye's journey and was really frustrated when it's kind of oh yeah we love Kanye when he's super creative and super arrogant and, and it comes off but we don't like him when he's being himself and it's a bit, you know, frowned upon or, you know, he shouldn't have said that or did he consider this? You know, it's like it's like conditional love, conditional. Yeah, we want people to be themselves as long as we as we agree upon who they are. Yes. Yeah. And we also sort of want them to be our yeah. pets. Like, yeah. I mean, you, you, when you kind of fetishize a celebrity, you dehumanize them, don't you? And he's <laughs> God knows his humanity is complicated. <laughs> But exciting. And I, I think that's why we're having this conversation right now. Why, like, it also raises something, um, <laughs> again, I don't have an answer for. But, like, what is cancelled? You know? Like, yeah. I know there are people who disappear. Like, there are journalists, for instance, who really just got cold. They're just gone now. Um, or they've gone kind of underground and they do, like, newsletters and stuff. But, like, ultimately, it's can you actually thing. stop someone like Kanye West? I think you can only do it if they care. Yes. That's like, that's, that's like my little theory on it was just like, you can only cancel someone if they care enough to be canceled. Like if they believe in their own, like whatever persona or, uh, internet life or whatever it is that they've created for themselves enough that you can cancel. Whereas if you like there's pe- there's been people who have said abhorrent shit, and they just be like, yeah, I said that shit. And what? Like, I'm sorry. Or they don't even say I'm sorry. It's like, yeah, that was me 10 years ago. Or that was a joke. Like, if you don't find it funny, my bad. But whatever, it was a joke. And that's it. And it's like, it's a waters off a duck, off, off, off duck's back. Yeah. But when you're then like, oh, no, I'm ri-, Like you said, those videos, these YouTube videos of like, I need to apologize for this, this and this. It's like, oh, see, now you've got, like, you've given, you've given into it now. And now that's it. Like, now you've let these people who don't know you who weren't maybe in that room when you said that thing, who have taken whatever it was, maybe out of context, whatever, you've let them take control. Whereas if you like, you know, a lot of comedians, if you write up a joke or a line of a joke and you put it in print and you just like, this is what Frank Boyle said. You're like, fuck me, Frank Boyle's an absolute asshole. But then like, if you see the whole joke and you were maybe in the room when the joke was being told, even if you don't agree with the joke and maybe even if you don't find it funny, even if you were in that room, you won't find him such an arsehole because you're like, oh, but I was in the moment. Like I, oh, yeah. I could see what was happening and I was in there literally physically 
And whilst, yeah, if you write it down, it looks fucking awful. Actually, it's not that bad. And someone like Frankie Wall won't let you cancel him because yeah. he just doesn't care. He's just be like, yeah, well, fuck it. Yeah, I said some abhorrent shit. It was a joke. Get over it. You know what I mean? Like, and that's that. And you're like, oh, well, fuck it. We tried, but I guess we can't cancel him. You know, and I feel like Kanye West in a certain level, he's like similar where it's like, most other people would have probably caved up when the, with the slavery things and whatever else. But he's just like, no. he's Kanye West. He doesn't care. Like, it, maybe he doesn't have enough, I, think he, I don't know, consciousness I about it all to like, like even I think be aware of what, what, what I think it means there are days in and which what the damage might leave the house after a lot of these incidents. But I think, no, I, ju- I just think he believes in himself yeah. to a level. But doesn't that, care enough to give into it. That's what I mean. That he keeps on going. No, I'm doing this. Like, I'll yeah. create this art because I believe it. Like, I remember this, this Zane Lowe interview that I've probably watched 10 times, the 2013 Zane Lowe interview. And Zane Lowe, like, asked him something like, who do you do it for? Like, like who do you, he goes, I do it for everyone. I do it for the people who think, who think I'm an idiot, who, who say, hey, Connie, just retire, stop making music. And I also do it for the people that, that, are, that can't wait for the next album, that want 10 more albums. And I think that's that's a, a level of self belief and a level of self esteem. I think that we really all aspire to. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. I would suspect he's finding things out about himself the more art he makes as well. Like I don't think he's, and I think this might be where you stray into the risk of being cancelled. People who seem to arrive fully formed and who say they are one thing and they're going to always be that. But like if we look at the career of Kanye. You know, you could cancel him now for supporting Trump or a year ago or whatever. But like in a year, he yeah. might be like, you know, yeah. chief propagandist for Hillary Clinton. Like we just don't know where he's going to go mm. next. Um, and yeah, he's, yeah, he's shown himself. He's shown like even his old identity is water off a duck's back. <laughs> you know, mm. things he used to rap about. Yeah. Now he won't allow like sexual abuse <laughs> in his music. <laughs> <laughs> who's to say we understand this it, it's also no, did either never. of you like 10 years ago read uh, that blog hipster runoff it was this kind of like parody but weirdly sincere parody of pitchfork and indie culture okay. and it used to always use the word authentic in inverted commas um and like it was so interesting i mean i feel like there's like a whole paper on the kind of semiotics of hipster runoff to be written but how like it was it was parodying how or satirizing how um you know everyone was so preoccupied with this idea of authenticity which and, and expressing authenticity on the internet so like if you were ever shown to be fake or had some like record company behind you that was secretly making you go viral, you know, it was, it was, that was the biggest crime and Pitchfork would slaughter you in a review and, you know, all of this. But like, I think we're kind of living in the aftermath of that yeah. where yeah. Um, everyone's trying to be inverted commas yeah. authentic, but be- maybe because... Kanye is like the best yeah. example of someone who actually is. <laughs> Mm. I was, yeah. except, except for us <laughs> <laughs> I, I also think as well like you like you said we've kind of got to our limit like i think most people have got to their wits end with this cancel culture stuff and maybe like it was easy to jump on the bandwagon and call someone an arsehole because they made like a rude comment 10 years ago but now i feel like most sensible people only want someone to be cancelled for actual cancelable things. For example, like no one's really rooting for Cosby and being like, oh, you know what? Like, <laughs> oh, 
he just roofied a few people. Let you know, let's just let him get back on the stage. Like, mm. no, you should fucking rot in jail. And like, we're all kind of very unanimous on that. Yeah. But like, the, the odd comment here or there that we know we've all made when we were drunk, or we've all made in the wrong in a group friend like friendly chat that we were trying to one up each other and who could say the most vile or the most shocking comment. We've all been there. So then when we like see someone trying to get cancelled from it, it's a bit yuck. It's a bit like icky because we're like, man, like I'm not really gonna start throwing shade on Kanye because like, okay, I haven't said the slavery thing, but I'm sure like if I filmed my life. There had been things that when I was 16 years old that I definitely don't want repeated and I'm not proud of, you know? But, like, listen, if Kanye West came out, they came out tomorrow that he raped, like, young girls, I don't think people would be like, oh, I'm going to listen to his next album. I'd be like, no, no, that's that guy's an arsehole. <laughs> like, we should be able to cancel him fully, you know yeah, what I mean? it's yeah. funny. I mean, I guess what you're saying is, like, it's about drawing a line between crime yeah. and actual things. Yeah. But then that yeah. kind of boils again, like massive heated debate that no one ever talks about anymore like four or five years ago would you punch richard spencer well would you well if i would can you remind me who richard spencer <laughs> is too much damage dash is he the, um the american neo-nazi the media's favorite fascist oh. from five years oh, okay ago. okay um yeah like he led the tiki torch parade and then he got punched he got like punched on video, but this, this is what I guess what I'm getting at here is uh, resurrecting this like ancient and forgotten debate, but which I had so much at the time. Like, and I don't, and honestly, I just delight in like saying I will punch him without offering any great philosophical argument for it, because <laughs> I'm five foot two. So like, does a punch yeah. really even matter in the scheme of things? No, but <laughs> like you know that whole alt right thing hinged entirely upon being an edgelord it hinged entirely yeah. upon saying like i'm just asking questions much like the anti-vaxxers now you know like i'm just asking questions uh the overton window of acceptable discourse is narrowing so i'm broadening the discussion blah 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 like it was all about just mm -hmm. just saying um but they were also nazis some of them mm -hmm. not all of them but some of them and so like yeah obviously we all know bill cosby did bad things and he should be locked up. But cancellation, and this is where cancellation completely fails as a, a mode of justice. Um, you know, and it goes no, after it, the guy who made the bad joke and it goes after the guy who like is a serial rapist. Um yeah. So like, yeah, what but like what alternative? Again, this is just the kind of futile yeah. individual fantasizing that we can like kill people by removing them from the internet or something i don't even know yeah. what it is but it's just another form of futility <laughs> isn't it yeah yeah it's for sure talking about perverts um i'm gonna make take this take this conversation to a to a sharp left here but i don't want to miss this topic before we let you go um internet <laughs> dating not saying that internet daters are perverts but hear me out no, jim and i were talking <laughs> unanimously no jim and i were talking and basically like, i've been with my girlfriend since i was 17 so before tinder was everything and now like this is not the reason that i'm still with her but the, now the thought of being single like gives me a certain level of anxiety just because like uh the thought of having to do that tinder stuff and all of that is just I don't know if I could. I probably would have to eventually, you know, after like 10 years of just sitting at home alone. But I was talking to Jim yesterday and we were like, it feels weird that, but now the old ways of of meeting someone or getting going on a date feel perverted. So for example, if you saw like a, a, an attractive person in the supermarket 
and you said like, oh, you know, whatever. And you like tried to make a move. You'd be like, and then you told your friends, you'd be like, what you fucking what? You spoke to a randomer in a supermarket and you asked them out for a date. Are you mental? And like, you'd probably be judged some way, you know? Or like, if you ask someone out on it, it feels like the only ways is like Tinder or being introduced through a friend. Like they're like the only two ways. And I wanted to get your opinion on like internet dating and just kind of what, where do you think it leads now that it's here? And so prominent as well. I, I love that you're just like tormenting yourself with these thought experiments of like, oh, yeah, yeah. You're in That's a relationship and it's all, yeah, yeah, yeah. but you're in your head, you're like, my friends will shun me for speaking to someone. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. Oh, God. And I, I am of the thinking, never again. Like, never, ever again. I hate dating apps, I think they're disgusting. Um, I, maybe at some point in the future I'll end up back on one, but like God knows, I hope never. Um, I, I mean, in a sense, they're just revealing something that was already there. That probably, like, were we to go back and watch episodes of Sex and the City, she'd be there, like, you know, typing into her antiquated MacBook about like the kind of consumerist subtext of dates, you know, of auditioning people to spend your life with. Um, so. You know that template was already there and i don't think these apps were born in a vacuum and suddenly created behaviors i think they just kind of enforced them or just like standardized these behaviors um but i do think that they it, it kind of comes back to like what we talked about at the very beginning it's competition you know mm. and it's breeding these really strange behaviors i think in men and women too i mean like you know procedures like or just at the very least a, a standard level of fake tanning. Um, but like, you know, it, it, certain behaviors, very kind of flippant, mean, just kind of consumerist uh, ways of treating each other. But then when you get into like the incel stuff that I don't know if much of that is even online in the time since I wrote the book, actually, because it was actually very hard to keep kind of track of these communities of like incels and other like assorted woman haters on the internet because they're always getting removed or moved around or they're like relabeling themselves or whatever yeah but like uh, you know you can see that the suffering of these men so clearly um and it has everything to do with yeah. these ideas that in their head like there is no alternative <laughs> you have to be on tinder you have to have a certain shape of jaw you have to have a certain width of wrist you know you yeah. have to you have to be a bastard to women because that's what they're turned on by all this stuff like there's an amazing book um heroes by franco bifo berardi about like essentially kind of connecting the dots between mass shooters incels yukiko mori like reality tv dating apps what do they all have in common it's the urge to win you know this kind of binary thinking that if you don't win you're a loser you know the mm. Donald Trump way of living, basically. Yeah. Um, and which yeah. is brutal and unforgiving, and leads to extremely nihilistic and fatalistic thinking. You know. Yeah, it, it's right because I, was, <clears throat> I recently just went on holiday with a mate who's recently single, and he's on Tinder. And so, like, I we was I was going through his profile, and he was just kind of. Exp- I honestly feel like a granddad when I speak about Tinder and stuff, and he was explaining it to me. And my mate's like, I'm five seven, five eight on a good day. He's six four. In his profile, he has six five, and I'm like, "Why are you put six five? You're six four. I mean, you're tall enough. Yeah. Like, are we like?" And he's like, "You don't understand." He's like, "He's like, well, I'm technically like six four and a half. So like, what's an extra half inch?" And I'm like, 
and he was explaining to me how basically like these the girls not obviously every single girl on tinder but the majority how like height for them is just a massive thing so if you've got six five in your like bio or whatever you're more likely to get swiped right or left whichever the i think it's right's the good one i don't know but like and, I, and then it and then it made sense to me because i was like yeah because that's all you have to go off i guess like when you're on a tinder profile yeah. you only have the physical that's all you have to go off anything and so like it seems to me like yeah it might be great for trying to find like a shag or whatever but i don't know how like if you're actually looking for a relationship how it's a good place to find any connection because both parties really are making rapid assumptions purely based off you know so a girl might swipe right on alex because he's six five but left on me because i'm five eight but yet i might be so much better for her in terms of you know like mutual interest and yada 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 but because i'm like seven inches shorter whatever it works out at you know, don't get that chance and vice versa obviously with men you know like he was showing me profiles that men have like it will say stuff like 34d double d or whatever and above like talking about like breast size and shit and like <laughs> that's like accepted syntax on, on on that's accepted on 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 like tinder it's not seen as like massively vile but imagine if you went like, again if we went into <laughs> that supermarket and you're just like is there anyone here with a 34 double d or above if you are Till three, please. I'd be interested. Like you'd be like, you'd be slapped, and rightly so. But like on Tinder and these other profiles, because you only have the physical, it mm. feels like there is no other. Like, what else could you t- like put in your bio? I don't know. That guy is asking mm. for catfish, <laughs> like a drag queen with like fake uh. tits um, <laughs> or something. I don't know. But like, it's that um reminds me of like video games when i was a child like my younger brother would have um the wwf wrestling like raw's war or whatever on playstation and you could like mm-hmm. design a female wrestler and the the final option in the breast department was tanked um i think it was called tanked and it was she was just this like large um voluptuous <laughs> wrestler lady. um but like i think it's worth remembering <laughs> it's a brief digression there into gaming history um but like that reminds me so much that you know mm. when we use these apps it might look like we're all talking to each other but we're also talking to machines and mm. you know we're making ourselves palatable as data the same way that like the kid puts the hammer and sickle in the twitter bio you know it's about a, a simple little data point that you can add to your personal brand you know and it's hilarious in its most extreme form you have yeah these men with like literal inch specific oh, yeah specification uh, 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 <laughs> do women do it for dick size <laughs> now i'm really curious no we're, we're, I mean, we're gonna bring it back awesome. soon i can we're assure you we're in the close. grimmest possible uh, future here guys uh, <laughs> 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 there, yeah I, I mean you can only hope that like any of those people on tinder yeah. it always ends with them meeting yeah. someone in reality and realizing how impossible it is to like design your perfect date through yeah. an app um, mm. It's impossible. Yeah. Um, so they're they're gonna have their ideas destroyed eventually, like by just punctured by reality. Um, it's also yeah. the very fact that like people are allowed to even entertain those fantasies I... in life is just so absurd. I'm not calling them like bad or anything. Just no. absurd. I I wonder if it's age specific. Like I was just saying to Jim, but just before we logged on here, I was like, I was having to think about it last night. I was like, I wonder if it's an age specific thing. And and, and by that I mean like maybe it's seen as perverted if you like 
said a line to a girl in a supermarket as a mid 20 year old but maybe if you're like 45 and the woman's 45 or whatever maybe it's seen as more appropriate and maybe them having tinder would be seen as less appropriate and maybe it's kind of like an age thing and that like as you kind of get older you we kind of revert revert back to the ways that maybe our parents would have met each other if they weren't introduced by friends yeah i think there's also a really again, maybe it's really obvious to say this, but like every Tinder bio, every passive aggressive Tinder bio about like women, yeah. like, they, they're kind of saying something about themselves more than anything mm. else, aren't they? <laughs> you know, they're, mm, yeah. they're revealing things about themselves um, and they're attempting to exert a kind of control. And, and mm. I mean, I do have a certain level of pity for any man using Tinder because the odds yeah. are just so against him. You know, and women are going to suffer in an entirely different way. But, but like, no, you know, and it was something that I so wanted to say. Using these because that's not what, what came to mind just when, when I heard They're you guys cruel, were speaking. You know? I thought, here's a guy who's putting, uh, I prefer these, like this, this, say, this bra size or whatever. But also, say, say it's not that guy, because I think that guy's in the minority. Say it is just, um, in his head, like he hasn't said it in his bio, he prefers this. But in his head, he's like, "No, this is this is this is distinctly what I'm looking for." On oh, that photo, she wasn't looking great, so no. Or oh, geez, under that light, she doesn't look that good. And geez, her hair's a bit. T to me, like when when I hear this or when I imagine this, I think surely he's doing almost a very similar thing to himself, like a commodification of himself. And that, like, when he looks in the mirror and his teeth aren't that white, he's thinking, oh, no. Or when he's, you know, yes. when he's a few grey hairs, he's thinking, oh, no, is that it? I need to get, I need to do that. Or, uh, uh, and I I mean, I don't want this to be like, a, hey, feel bad for the guys here because I know women have it real tough on the internet. <laughs> and I, I, there's no one that can deny that. But I, I also see that, the kind of mirroring like this back to back to the self that we talk about this whole it feels like the internet is this vor like this like black hole right like we're in this hole and we're trying to learn more about about ourselves and there's just the internet here and unless we're careful it's going to suck us in and warp any understanding that we have of ourselves mm -hmm. and thus other people truly yes if you like the incel forums <laughs> When they, the weirdest thing I noticed when I was on them for like for research um, was uh, it was that like even when they got what they were looking for, they didn't know how to accept it. So they would go on dates with women and then the guy would report back to the intel form and be like, she's fucking with me. She didn't wear high shoes. She wore flat shoes. And she said, go to the cinema instead for dinner. So she's testing me and yeah. she doesn't think I'm serious. And it's just like, dude the girl wanted to go on a date with you. Like, even if it got so far as like they have sex or something, he's like, oh, she's just a whore. Yeah. I can't go on another date with her. And then you're just like, yeah. dude, why are you here? What do you want yeah. exactly? Like, has this self-loathing infected literally yeah. every possible future? So there is no way out. Even if you end up getting married, you'll be a married, unhappy incel. Like, it's just, your, you know, pathological after a certain point. Um, but it's, it, it's a kind of misguided mm -hmm. sense of community and solidarity i feel in response Rajin, to all of these factors that we've to, been talking to, to, about to me, now we reach this point i think it would be lovely for us to talk about ways in which 
you were able to get a better connection with yourself because this seems to be the only antidote that we have to to being victims to the internet to kind of have a strong sense of self to be able to say this is me oh and i have these insecurities or these kind of um how to say uh limitations or like these are my weaknesses and to, like you said i mentioned you mentioned before how how you need to watch yourself oh i'm getting pulled here i'm getting pulled there can you tell us how that's improved for you i know it's a working process for everyone but how you've improved your relationship with yourself and thus your relationship with the internet yeah so tricky and i think it's so unique to every person um, and I definitely make a point in never saying, like, you have to quit everything because I really don't think that's realistic. Um, and I don't want to come off as some, like, bland centrist here or something, but I just don't think it's realistic to tell everyone to quit every platform. Um, I think there are certain changes that you can make in a bigger, more holistic kind of sense to your life. Like, much of how I've changed how I use the internet is about identifying the things that I accept but that don't make me happy and getting rid of them. Um, I'm not making a big deal out of it. Like, there's nothing more boring than those people who announce that they're going to quit, you know, Twitter or Facebook or whatever. Um, but it's more just about kind of pruning away at the things you mm-hmm. don't like. Unfollow the thing that actually you think makes you feel good, but actually it's making you feel bad about yourself okay. every day. Um, the other kind of big one was I moved to Berlin. Um, I'm, I'm back in Dublin now. And <laughs> as I was saying earlier, about to, before this podcast, I'm about to move into a Martello Tower. Um, it's a long convoluted series of events which led to this we were supposed to go back to Berlin we we both got COVID um, the week we were going back yeah (laughs) Um, but it all worked out gonna live in a tower which should be really lovely Um, but yeah being in Berlin I felt really changed everything because it took financial pressure off so I wasn't always kind of feeling like a thwarted Uh overgrown teenager you know um, like unable to afford anywhere to live basically things like that um kind of you might not realize you have alternatives and it's not about completely mm-hmm. opting out or you know going off grid or something but uh, just different lifestyles you know that might suit yeah. you um and that could make everything a lot easier especially if you want to make mm-hmm. art um i think you have to be quite pragmatic about these things otherwise you won't be able to do it um and yeah, I, in the book also it ends with me, obviously, it, well, if you've, if you've read it, obviously, um, kind of beginning a relationship, and which was predominantly an online exchange of emails over years. Um, and it meant really actually examining myself and taking a step back and being like, am I willing to risk this and tell him that I love him? Um, and that mm. was a big leap, and it was quite literally a leap of taking something off the screen and into real life. Um, and th- I think that could apply in lots of different ways for different people. You know, it might be that you're sort of experimenting with writing or something and you haven't taken that leap to like sending them to try and get published or, you know, but I think yeah. it's worth taking a step back from this thing that we've all been dragged into over the last 10 years um, of social media and looking at it. And if, say, you are one of those people who flirts with politics, maybe you should do something with that, you know, or or environmentalism, but just sort of trying to yeah. make real this ephemeral kind of constantly changing online life. Um, and the other thing, uh, so that sounds very vague, but I do think it's something that will be unique to each person. The other thing I've been doing, especially since the pandemic, yeah. is um, 
really trying to cultivate a sense of space and time, like in presence in space and time. So I'm trying to just get, get out for a walk every day, go to the park, like really basic, obvious things. I do yoga all the time now. I'm obsessed with it because I, I'm not very good at meditation. I think I'm too neurotic or <laughs> so far yeah. it hasn't worked for me, but um, I am able to do yoga and it's, it's quite similar in ways. And it really strengthens that connection between like your body, your mind, your sense of mm. space and time. Um, anything like that. It could be cooking. It could be just going and reading a book. But yeah, I, I'm suspicious of digital detoxes. I think it's the equivalent of like a fad diet. And the better yeah. alternative is to cultivate a sort of more um, beautiful answer. Use of <laughs> yeah, I love it. Beautiful, yeah. It reminds us about the meditation, just that we have our great friend, I call him Rafiki, um, our, um, our saviour, Adam, who, uh, who's a Buddhist. And Question he talks for about, the Buddhists. We, we, go, we go back to him about once or twice every year with just, like, life questions. Um, yeah. And he one thing that he said that really, really stu stu um, stood out to me, because I'm like you, uh, I can't really meditate and just sit there. When I do is when I have these <laughs> thoughts of when I'm going to be single, even though I shouldn't be because I'm in a happy relationship, <laughs> how am I going to traverse Tinder? That's what happens to me when I try to meditate. Mm -hmm. But Super I am... Um, <laughs> Yeah, exactly. But I was telling him how, like, doing sports, like in jujitsu and this, or when I cook, and the, like, I'm just in the moment. I'm just like focusing. I'm just enjoying it, and I don't like have these. And he's like, "That's a meditative state." Like, people yeah. think that meditation is sitting down and just you know for ten minutes or whatever it may be, and like being zen. But like, yeah, that's one form of meditation. But it's like, there's look, you can be in a meditative state without quote unquote meditating, as we would kind of traditionally yeah. see it and since he said that i was like yeah it's really like changed the way i see meditation so now like when someone says do you meditate i say not traditionally speaking mm -hmm. but i do incorporate it into my life where like i try to be present and have a meditative state even if it is mm -hmm. like you said walking my dog in the park or you know whatever it may be but just having that kind of presence I'm rather like than trying to is, yeah, oh, trust me. It's not meditation, but is it like the ultimate? No, it doesn't event. feel far from it. <laughs> oh, I wish I had a dog. <laughs> yeah, I've sent my girlfriend out with uh, with the dog while, while we were recording. It's kind of like she's like, "Oh, really?" I was like, "Yeah, I'm recording." It's like, okay, got a little Jack Russell puppy that you can't be taking risks. <laughs> can't be taking risks. Like it's funny, um, dogs, squids. Um, for the last year, especially, and even longer going back. Just been so obsessed with reading about nature, honestly, and reading about like yeah. consciousness. And, and <laughs> I don't know, the here's where I sound lunatic, and it's like, no, 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 she's we, we, the mushroom guy. Um, no. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, just sort of constantly working on that. That's been a thing that's been ticking around in my life. Like, yeah. I'm reading um, this wonderful book right now called Underland, um, Robert McFarlane, and like he makes the point that even kind of how we think yeah. about landscape and time. I don't know, there are just kind of almost different dimensions to how we could be thinking about these things. And mm. I guess like it comes down to the interconnectedness of all things too. But, yeah. But yeah, I mean, mm. it's just sort of been a little project of mine to learn more about the world around me. Another yeah. book was um, How to Do Nothing by Jenny O'Dell, which I kind of boringly talk about all the time. But honestly, <laughs> like especially when the yeah. pandemic started, it was so yeah. helpful to me to just like be reminded that yeah. all these things matter that just aren't mm. on the internet that they should yeah kind of to the forefront of your existence actually without moralizing she's never like that it's a it's an amazing book um, mm. but yeah that's been my project for the last year just kind of being present 
No, yeah, you know, you're not crazy about the animals, definitely not. In fact, we we did a podcast with uh, Megan Olmer, who um, did a load of research into um, the human animal bond connection, and there's like so much science that just backs up. But the, when you see a dog, why you, even if it's not your own dog, why you just intrinsically feel better for seeing that dog that day? Oh my and god, she, I do. Like, yeah, she, she she goes into the whole. She goes into all of the science about the oxytocin levels and this, that, and the other, and yada yada. But um, no, it's really great to to be to feel vindicated in my beliefs and not feel like a a crazy dog person, which is what um, I feel like I've turned into since I got mine. And uh, no, I was just um, okay. before I went on this podcast. I was uh, looking at quotes from the book, The Third Policeman. Um, do you know this one? I don't know. No, I'm not well, aware. Brian, it's, oh my God, it's completely nuts. It's, um, it's sort of a noir featuring rural Ireland and policemen on bicycles. And, um, mm-hmm. But anyway, here's a quote from it that I was obsessed with. My father mm. was a man who understood all dogs thoroughly and treated them like human beings. <laughs> Yeah, there you go. That's honestly it is. Are you? <laughs> no, it is. It is. And and you know, one of my favorite quotes is, um, and we bring it up in the podcast is Ricky Gervais, and because he hasn't got a dog, but he he goes to his local park. I think it's Hyde Park in London. And his 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 theory on dogs is no one, no dog belongs to any man. They're just there are dogs, just like the way that air belongs to all of us and land. It was all ours. No one really actually. And he's like, when I go to the, this park, I see them as like my dog, just as much as it's the owner's dog. Granted, the <laughs> owner pays for it and everything else, but it's all our dog. <laughs> and I was like, that, the dog uh, in your, um, yeah, exactly. The boys. Even- yeah exactly <laughs> yeah yeah and then um, and uh and yeah that's that is the best way to think about it's just like and that yeah the, even though i have zazu now i feel like i'm just kind of like he's been given to me but really he's for everyone else it's not he's oh, okay. not just mine but yeah there's a great little way of thinking about dogs um yeah uh even though sometimes i do want to pull my hair out when he starts barking at 6 a.m as long as the juice is worth the squeeze yeah that's what we care about. The, and as jim but would say just, the juice is definitely worth the squeeze i feel like you touched on a very important thing and it just resonated with me the sense exactly that exactly every everything we do does matter and that very often particularly if we spend huge amounts of time on the internet we may feel that the things that we do off the internet don't matter. And like my difficulties with the internet are as a direct result of, you know, you're hearing huge studies like climate change studies, you hear this government policy, you see another COVID restriction, you see all these and you're thinking, oh God, oh God, oh God, what can I do? But really you can do so much. Like we, we all can do so much. We can do things that are good for us, good for the people around us every day. Like we can little things. It's, and and I think that switch, like that like perspective switch that you're talking about, learning more about nature, yeah. learning more about from our friend, the mushroom guy, Rob, <laughs> is that when you take the step back, you just see things a little differently and going, oh, I do matter. Maybe it's impossible to measure it on the magnitude that we're looking at it, but it matters to this person's life. It matters to my life. And like we all matter, you know, like every... Like, I think you'll feel it. You might not be able to kind of quantify it, but you will feel it in a different way that you feel the things you do on the internet. Like you could have endless viral tweets and you probably would never feel quite the satisfaction you'd get from like, I don't know, cooking a dinner from scratch or something. or just Mm -hmm. like making something or writing something or going for a walk. It's just a very different form of satisfaction. Can I I ask you, Roisin, is is there a big difference when someone comes up to you and says 
like looks you in the eye and says thank you like i read your work it, it really helped me through a tough time compared to when you hear positive feedback online yeah that's actually i mean i don't know they're like it's wonderful either way it's wonderful if the book has reached someone and they enjoyed it and they related to it that means the world to me um I have to say, and this is that I'm not ungrateful for all of the events and podcasts and all this stuff that I've got to do this year. It's been amazing. Mm-hmm. And it's been an opportunity to have conversations that previously for years I only got to have with myself. Um, okay. So that's beyond value. It never really felt real. That's something I do have to say. And I wondered, uh, I had like a load of guilt over it almost when the book came out because it was all over Zoom. It all came out in lockdown and I barely even saw the book kind of in reality. You know, um, I never got to go into a bookshop and like do a signing or anything or even a launch. Um, the launch was like me and Rob and our friend Simon just like getting drunk. And then I fell asleep on the sofa. Like literally it wasn't a book launch, you know, like so it never felt entirely real. And I wondered, was I just miserable by nature and I'm not capable of enjoying this nice thing that's happening? Uh, <laughs> but then isn't that what I'm signing up for? Like a lifetime of neurosis and self-loathing as a writer, well, an Irish writer. I can just tell that. you that I've had an amazing 90 minutes. I really appreciate you coming on. I really appreciate, yeah, I, I love your energy. I love your honesty. And thanks so much for taking the dive. I mean, for sure. It's it's rare, I think, to come across someone who spent, as in, because even I know you went through difficult moments doing research for this book because it requires you to go through lows. Like the like, it's not like the internet. It's not like you can um, just go through the light part light part of the internet and then just come back. You know, it, you have to go all in, and you've done that. And it's yeah, it's great to hear your insight. It's great oh, yeah. to hear your perspective and anyone listening we would highly recommend buying the book yeah <laughs> that's what we're, we're gonna call Thanks it so on your on Kanye Kanye West for 90 minutes <laughs> <laughs> exactly <laughs> uh, no uh, please tell please tell rob we were asking for him. this is now a kanye podcast yeah. exactly yeah. thank you yeah, so amazing. much amazing. i will i will We'll be in our tower in two days' time, so <laughs> we'll let him know <laughs> no, when I see so him then. And in the meantime, thanks a million for having me on. It's so lovely to just talk about all this stuff. Not at all. The pleasure is all ours. <laughs> Hi, guys. Thank you for listening to the podcast. Please don't forget to subscribe and leave a five-star review if you haven't already. Every review helps us climb the podcast charts so that even more of you can listen to our amazing guests. We really appreciate the support. Remember to tune in next week, but until then, keep safe and have a good one.